Heavenly Father, thank you for this day that we've enjoyed together. We thank you for the opportunity to read your word together, to reflect on it together. We thank you for the great blessing it is to be able to sing your praises together and to meet together in the name of Jesus around your word in the power of your spirit. Father, please speak to us tonight so that we might know you better, might understand who you are as glorious Trinity, Father, Son and Spirit, to your own praise. We pray this in Jesus' name and the power of your spirit. Amen. Well, I want to say well done. You have done a fantastic job. You have survived to Tuesday night. In particular, you survived our little excursion last night into the deep and glorious waters of the Trinity. You live to tell the tale. And I hope, I mean, I was praying that it would be really a helpful and wonderful, if slightly overwhelming, experience of stopping to actually reflect on who God is in his great glory as Father, Son and Spirit. And as Duncan said tonight, we're going to look at the spirit of life. A couple of years after Jenny and I got married, uh, we spent a year in India working as in a, a school for missionary kids. And it was an, an amazing year in every possible way. India, I was saying to someone this morning, uh, or last night, I can't remember. After a while at conference, you just, sometime in the past, I had a conversation. And I remember saying, India is, is glorious and scary all at the same moment. It's just absolutely frenetic and it's fantastic and it's exciting and challenging in ways I never expected. Uh, this was one challenge that I never expected, the challenge of having a shower. Uh, the school we were working in was a boarding school. It was a fantastic school. We loved our time there. We were looking after a, a, a dorm of 19 year 10 girls. We were their mum and dad whilst they were at, at the school for you know big six month blocks of the year. Um, because the sort of section of the campus that we lived and worked on uh, was uh, where sort of the girls were, um, I, it was tricky for me to have a shower. The reason being is we didn't have a shower in our little tiny three-room apartment. There was no bathroom with a shower in it. If I wanted to go to the shower, I just went up to the shower block. That's all right. Many of you are in that situation here this week. We lived like that for 11 months and I just had to go up to the shower block. The tricky thing also was I couldn't just go up to the shower block any old time because it was a campus full of women. So I, the only time I could ever go to the shower was when they had their set time for doing homework in the evening after dinner. Then I could go up there and if I could get inside the shower block when there was no one there, I could lock the door and have a shower. The tricky thing was they'd all had showers all afternoon and so by the time I got there, given that the water was wood-fired, they stoked the fire, and if the hot water had run out, I'm getting up there and I'm turning the shower on and, oh, they've used all the hot water. Further slight complications of this was actually we had a water shortage, which meant I could only go to the shower three times a week, which was the same for them. Same for them. Actually, if you were in the junior, like if you were lower high school, it was twice a week, and you didn't get to go to the shower, you got a bucket, um, and, it, you know, and you'd do it like this. Anyway. Um, so I could only go three times a week. It was often cold. And the other slight complicating factor was we were living at 2,500 metres altitude. That, <laughs> that means it's cold all the time. And so can you imagine for a moment, when, I, when we finally got back to Australia, we came back to our little sort of apartment that we rented, and I walked in and thought, my goodness, 
there is a shower in our flat. And I can have a shower as many times as I like, and I'm pretty sure the first week I did it twice a day, um, just for the heck of it. And it was hot water. And like I could stand there and stand there and stand there, and sometimes I just stood there to see how long I could stand there. Why am I telling you this rather inane story? It's because sometimes you only realise how astoundingly good something is when you realise the reality, the rest of reality, and then you appreciate what you've been given. I think that's true in, just in so many areas of our life. We, we don't appreciate often just the material blessings that we live with because, well, we've just never really experienced or had our eyes open to those who don't have that. And so what I want to do tonight, I, I want to start by reading you what I think is one of the most sobering passages in the Bible. And the reason I want to do this is not because I'm trying to be intense, not because I'm trying to manipulate you. The reason I want to read this to you and share this with you is because I think it's only when we get this reality that we realise just how good and how generous and how loving God is in wanting to give us life. This is the other part of the picture that we need. So let's have a look at it. It's there in your outline. Revelation chapter 20. Uh, John's been given a vision uh, by God, and this is what he sees. Then I saw a great white throne, and the one who sat on it. The earth and the heaven fled from his presence, and no place was found for them. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne, and books were opened. Also, another book was opened, the book of life. And the dead were judged according to their works as recorded in the books. And the sea gave up the dead that were in it. Death and Hades gave up the dead that were in them. And all were judged according to what they had done. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. That is the second death, the lake of fire. And anyone whose name was not found written in the book of life was thrown into the lake of fire. There is a judgment beyond death for all of us. That's the clear teaching of the Christian scriptures. Jesus taught it. Physical death is not the end because here even the dead are judged. And the picture here is that there are two outcomes. There are those whose names are written in the book of life who inherit life writ large in capital letters, the experience of the fulfilment of all of God's promises, but there are also those whose names are not written in the book of life, who when they're judged according to the way they've lived, they are found wanting, and they're thrown into this lake of fire, which is described as the second death. Some dead live, some dead die in the second death. Some experience the blessing and fulfill promises of God, but some experience the just wrath of God against sin. And the key is, is your name written in the book of life? That's the key and only question here. And so if you're going to take anything the Bible says seriously, then that has to be a crucial question. How do I get my name written in that book of life? Well, talk one, 
what we saw was that God's great desire for you, for all of his creatures, is that we might have life in his presence forever. That is what God wants. That is his heart's passion. And in talk two last night, we saw the objective work of God in Jesus the Messiah, in his death and resurrection, to overcome the problem of sin, to defeat death, to rise to life, all of which he did in the power of the Spirit. But that was God's objective work, the, the objective part of God's mission to bring life to his creatures who are bound for the second death. The question is tonight, how does what God did in Jesus actually help us? What is the personal work of God to bring life to me and you? Given that the problem of sin is actually a very personal problem. It's my problem. Sin is our sickness, our deep depravity for all of us. So what's God going to do about that? What is, if you like, the subjective side of God's mission to bring life? And the key, as Duncan mentioned before, and as it's there in your outline, is in Jesus' words. John 6, verse 63, there in your book. The words that I have spoken to you, says Jesus, they are life and spirit. The spirit brings life through the words of Jesus. The spirit brings life through the words of Jesus. So what we're going to do tonight is, is to see the absolutely beautiful way that the Holy Spirit is involved in every single aspect of bringing life to all of us who are facing the reality of the second death. Now, to make it easier, because I know that sort of there's lots of passages and they can get a bit, and I'm going to jump over some and skip through others quickly, I'm going to try, and this is a bit crazy, I'm going to try to draw a picture on the PowerPoint. Well, it's not PowerPoint, it's Keynote, but anyway. I'm going to try and draw a picture on it, of, to try to, which will have everything on one picture. So if that's you, if you're a visual person, then you can make your own version of this picture. Or frankly, if you come up with a much better one, then great, you draw that and show it to me later and I'll be way impressed. Okay. Let's have a look at the Spirit's life-giving mission. First of all, now, can you see my guy up there? Yeah, he's got a white face. I don't know why, but anyway, that's just what I did. First thing, part A. That Spirit directs Jesus' mission. This happens occasionally, especially in the book of Acts. It doesn't seem to be a regular thing or necessarily an expected thing. But sometimes, sometimes the Spirit, the Holy Spirit, intervenes and directs the course of Jesus' mission to bring life to the world. So, for instance, in Acts 8.39, is my favourite because it's a Star Trek moment. That is, you know, what's it called in Star Trek when they sort of they go that, yeah, the beam me up Scotty machine, right? Where they, and so in this Acts chapter 8, what happens is the Spirit snatches Philip, who's one of Jesus' disciples who's proclaiming Jesus, snatches him away. I don't even know what that would look like. Snatches, and suddenly he appears somewhere else. That's pretty freaky. But the Spirit doesn't seem to do this all the time. The Spirit doesn't always intervene. But at different points through Acts of the Apostles, you can see the Spirit directing Jesus' mission. So that's one way the Spirit's involved in this mission to bring life. Secondly, the Spirit empowers Jesus' proclaimers. Jesus commissioned his disciples, Acts chapter 1, to be his witnesses to the end of the earth. But he didn't just give them a job, he promised them power to do it, to fulfil their task, and it was going to be through the Spirit that was going to come on them. 
So you can see there on your outline, when the Spirit comes in Acts chapter 2, look at the last verse of the passage there, verse 4. All of Jesus' disciples were filled with the Holy Spirit. And what did they do? They began to speak in other languages as the Spirit gave them ability. The Spirit empowers the proclaimers. But actually, it's not limited to the apostles. A bit later on, Acts chapter 4, verse 29. Let's have a look at that one. Here's all of Jesus' followers gathered together. They're praying, and they say, And now, Lord, look at their threats. That is the Jewish rulers who they threatened the Christians, you're not allowed to speak anymore in Jesus' name. Right? So they're in a scary persecution situation, threatened and told not to speak in Jesus' name. So they pray, Lord, look at their threats and grant to us, your servants, to speak your word with all boldness. I mean, that's what you need when you're in a scary situation. You need boldness to proclaim Jesus. Verse 30, while you stretch out your hand to heal and signs and wonders are performed through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. And when they had prayed, the place in which they were gathered together was shaken and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and spoke the word of God with boldness. What does the Spirit do? The Spirit is empowerment for bold proclamation and it came on all the believers in answer to their prayer. Okay, part C, the Spirit testifies to the authenticity of Jesus' message. I'm actually going to skip over this point. It's about the miracles that accompanied the apostles' proclamation uh, for which the disciples prayed in that prayer that we just read in verse 30, but which, in my opinion, the New Testament doesn't expect will necessarily accompany our proclamation because, frankly, you and I are not apostles. And I've got a whole lot more I could say and explain about that. Uh, and then how that's connected to blaspheming the Spirit. But you'll have to come to question time and someone will have to ask the right question and then I'll wind that up and... That'll all come. But let's shift focus now. I'm going to move on to point D. So page 22, point D. I'm going to shift focus from the proclaimer to the one hearing the proclamation. Point D. The Spirit brings understanding of Jesus' gospel. This is a really important point, which is why I want to spend a little bit of time here. The passage you've got there, and I've broken it down into paragraphs because it's all really helpful, is 1 Corinthians chapter 2. So let's have a look at 1 Corinthians chapter 2 here. Uh, A couple of different paragraphs. First of all, you've got verses 1 to 5, and you might like to jot down the heading here. I've got it up on the PowerPoint. Verses 1 to 5, Paul points out that his message is a weak message and that he is a weak messenger. A weak message and messenger. Because Paul's message that he's preaching is about a crucified Messiah, Jesus Christ. Christ just meaning Messiah, the anointed one. His message is about a crucified Messiah. That's a weak message, right? Because whenever the world hears about you're proclaiming this king who died, that seems really dumb. That seems really weak. In fact, people would have said, that's just ridiculous to be proclaiming a king who died. What sort of king is that? A dead Messiah ain't the Messiah. And so it was a weak message that Paul preached, this good news of life in Jesus. It was a weak message. 
But then in verses 6 to 9, he says, but actually this weak message, it is the power of God or the wisdom of God. It might seem like foolishness, it might seem weak, but actually it is God's great wisdom. And then jump down to verses 10 to 13, which is the bit we're particularly interested in. Verses 10 to 13. Let me read it. These things God has revealed to us through the Spirit. For the Spirit searches everything, even the depths of God. For what human being knows what is truly human except the human spirit that is within? So also no one comprehends what is truly God's except the Spirit of God. Now we have received not the Spirit of the world, but the Spirit that is from God, so that we may understand the gifts bestowed on us by God. Okay, right next to your note, this is the crucial role of the Spirit. This is the crucial, critical role of the Spirit. It is through the Spirit working in us that God reveals this message about the crucified Jesus that it really is God's wisdom and it's not just crazy mumbo-jumbo. You only get that insight if the Spirit of God helps you to get it. And the analogy Paul draws is really astounding. He says, verse 11 and 12, look, it's only your internal human spirit that really knows you. Only your human spirit really has that insight into who you are. So too, he says, it's the Spirit of God who really knows the mind of God, who really knows God. And this is the amazing He says, and God has put that spirit, his spirit, in you so that you can understand what God is doing and what he has done in Jesus, the crucified Messiah. Finally, then on to verses 14 to 16, he says the Spirit makes all the difference. The Spirit is, is the thing that makes all the difference. Have a look there, verse 14. Those who are unspiritual do not receive the gifts of God's Spirit, for they are foolishness to them. And they are unable to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. Those who are spiritual discern all things, and they are themselves subject to no one else's scrutiny. For who has known the mind of the Lord so as to instruct him? But we have the mind of Christ. See, the great division in the world is between those who have the Spirit and those who don't. And if you don't have the Spirit of God, you will not accept God's wisdom, which is the message about Jesus and his death. It will seem foolish. It will seem naive nonsense to you. Because accepting God's word as true spiritual wisdom with a capital S, Spirit, that requires discernment. It's only the Spirit of God that helps you go from this is nonsense to, you ready, watching? Two. Oh. I get it. And it's the Spirit that grants you understanding that receives what God has done in Christ and makes the response, enables the response of faith in you and love for God. Now, let me just uh, stop and pause there for a moment and just say there's a really clear implication here for you. See, 
if you've ever wondered, do I really have God's Spirit in me? I mean, I, I, don't, feel, I don't feel much. I don't feel like sort of a warmth inside. I don't seem to be as excited as others. Well, let me say this. If you have put your trust in Jesus, if you say, yes, Jesus is my Lord and my Saviour, and I seek to follow him, I stuff up all the time, but I, you know, when you really put it to me, I do, I want to follow Jesus. I want to trust him. You know what? That is only because God's Spirit is in you. Only because of it. There is assurance here, reassurance. It is only by the Spirit of God that you can say, Jesus is Lord. Only by the Spirit of God. So don't doubt that you have the Spirit of God. If you've come to Christ, then God's Spirit is active within you. Uh, John Calvin was one of the great Protestant reformers of the 16th century. This is not his picture, by the way. <laughs> He's often been described as the theologian of the Holy Spirit because he really thought deeply about the work of the Spirit in the life of the Christian. And he illustrates the Spirit's work like this, and I think this is beautiful. He says, Indeed, the Word of God is like the sun shining upon all those to whom it is proclaimed, but with no effect among the blind. Now all of us are blind by nature in this respect. Accordingly, it cannot penetrate into our minds unless the Spirit, as the inner teacher, through his illumination, makes entry for it. It is the Spirit that grants us understanding of this wonderful message of life in Jesus, which enables faith. But that's not all the Spirit does. The Spirit brings us to faith in Jesus, and then, so this is what we've got so far, and then it's even more amazing. The Spirit unites us to Jesus. The Spirit unites believers to Jesus. Paul puts it this way in 1 Corinthians 12, 13. For in the one Spirit, we were all baptised into one body, that is the body of Christ, Jews or Greeks, slaves or free, and we were all made to drink of the one Spirit. It's a very little sentence, easy to skip over, but quite profound in what the Apostle Paul is saying here under the inspiration of God. In the one spirit, we were all baptised into the body of Christ. So John Calvin explains the significance of this. Let me read on. We must now examine this question. How do we receive those benefits which the Father bestowed on his only begotten Son? Not for Christ's own private use, but that he might enrich poor and needy men. First, we must understand that as long as Christ remains outside of us and we are separated from him, all that he has suffered and done for the salvation of the human race remains useless and of no value for us. All that he possesses is nothing to us until we grow into one body with him. It is through the secret energy of the Spirit 
by which we come to enjoy Christ and all his benefits. The Holy Spirit is the bond by which Christ effectually unites us to himself. You can see the little diagram I've got there. Christ and his benefits. Justification, sanctification, adoption into God's family, glorification. Those are the benefits of Christ, of his death and resurrection. And what John Calvin's saying is, unless we are joined to Christ, they will remain eternally separate from us. See, God's objective work in the death and resurrection of Jesus, as, as wonderful as it is, means nothing to us until we are joined to Christ. And we are joined to Christ in the Spirit. In the Spirit. In the Spirit through faith is how we are joined to Christ. So without being united to Christ, all that God has achieved it would remain out of reach. But that is what the Spirit does. It unites us to Christ through the Spirit by faith. Uh, a quote here from a guy, Robert Lethem, who's a theologian. He puts it like this, and this makes union with Christ. You start to see how important is union with Christ. He says, union with Christ is, in fact, the foundation of all the blessings of salvation justification, sanctification, adoption and glorification are all received through our being united to Christ. So the fact that it's the Spirit that unites us to Christ is a really big deal. A really big deal. Okay, moving on. The Spirit is also the blessing poured out on all those who believe. Our diagram's starting to get a little bit cluttered. So if you go back to the day of Pentecost, when the Spirit was first poured out, the Apostle Peter makes it abundantly clear that the Spirit is promised to everyone who turns to the Lord Jesus Christ. Every single person. So Acts chapter 2, verse 38, Peter said to them, Repent, be baptised, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, so your sins may be forgiven, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is for you, for your children, and for all who are far away. And I assume that includes you here today, by the way, or those who are far away. Everyone whom the Lord our God calls to him. So what this means when you put it together with point D that we saw earlier, that the Spirit brings understanding of the gospel, is that the Spirit is both, somewhat bizarrely, the cause of faith as well as the blessing that comes from faith. So Gordon Fee puts it like this, faith itself as a work of the Spirit leads us to receive and experience the Spirit who also comes through the same faith. Although it does not fit our logical scheme well, the Spirit is thus both the cause and the effect of faith. You're saying, well, that just doesn't make sense, right? Like, does the spirit come first or faith? Chicken or the egg? Oh, I'm just that. well, I mean, Gordon, I think is right. Just what does the Bible teach? It teaches you no one can say Jesus Lord except by the spirit of God. So the spirit's got to come first. However, Peter stands up on the day of Pentecost. All those who repent and be baptized in the name of Jesus, sins forgiven and you'll receive the blessing of the spirit. They're both affirmed. The spirit is mysteriously both the cause and the great blessing that comes from faith. Now, I'm going to um, sort of pause here for a moment and just to investigate something. 
Some Christians claim that there's a second blessing or a second baptism of the Spirit available for Christians beyond their initial conversion. And some would even say that this is actually the key for living a Christian life where you can overcome sin, where you can experience the victory over sin. You need this second blessing of the Spirit. I remember talking with a friend after church one Sunday and she was sharing how she'd been talking to an older Christian neighbour and my friend shared with her neighbour how she was struggling a bit as a Christian and her neighbour's response, well, you just need to be baptised by the Spirit. You're a believer, you're a Christian, you trust in Jesus but you haven't experienced the fullness of the Spirit in your life, that's your problem. So you need to get baptised in the Spirit. Well, is there any biblical basis for this second blessing or second baptism of the Spirit? Um, as far as I can make out, there's two different sorts of passages that are usually cited as evidence for a second blessing. They tend to all come from the book of Acts, well, mostly. So the first of the three I've listed there on your outline. So from Acts chapter 2, the day of Pentecost, where Jesus' followers, who were obviously already believers, yet they received the Spirit. So isn't that some sort of second blessing going on? Or Acts 8, where after Philip preaches to them, some Samaritans come to faith, but they don't receive the Spirit until Peter comes and prays for them. Or Acts 19, where Paul meets some disciples who've never heard of the Holy Spirit, but who've subsequently received the Spirit when they're baptised in the name of Jesus. What's going on here? Well, the problem in each of those instances in Acts is they are all quite exceptional they occur at fairly, well, very significant moments in the expansion of the Christian church. Pentecost was an incredibly unique, exceptional moment. All, we saw that yesterday, that all the great longing for the day when the God would start to pour out his spirit, it, all, it happened at that particular day. It's quite a unique event. The expansion of the people of God to include the Samaritans, which is what Acts chapter 8 is about, that's a significant breakthrough moment. And it was quite exceptional. And so exceptional that when the Christians in Jerusalem heard that the, even the Samaritans were trusting in Jesus, they had to send some of their key guys down there to check it out. And so Peter and John get down there when they realize these guys really do trust in Jesus. Who would have ever thought the Samaritans could be saved? It's blowing our mind. They haven't received the Spirit. Well, we better pray. And the Spirit comes. And I think it's because it's a way of showing the Jerusalem Christians that, no, this is what God's doing. Because guess what? They got the Spirit just like you. And then, uh, what about Acts 19? Well, Acts 19, you've got some disciples who've never heard of a Holy Spirit. They've received this baptism of John the Baptist. That is, they've never been baptised, I take it, as a Christian. They were seriously lacking in, in a grasp of the Christian faith. The significance seems to be, as far as I can make out, and I'm still trying to get my head entirely around this one, but we're still, we won't get to Acts 19 until a bit later in public meetings, so you know, I'm just holding it off for a little while. The significance seems to be these were righteous old covenant believers rather than new covenant believers in Christ. So I think the significance here is there is a changing of the era moment when they move from the old covenant to the new covenant and so they receive the blessing of the Spirit, which is the sign of the new covenant era. So none of those, I think, are going to really cut ice in terms of a suitable paradigm and justification for saying all Christians should have a second experience of the Spirit. Rather, I think it's, there was an unusual delay with these particular believers 
in their initial reception of the Spirit because of the rather exceptional circumstances that they all represented. Now, the other set of passages used to sometimes support a second blessing comes from the many examples in Acts where people who were already believers are subsequently filled with the Spirit. And there's a few examples. Acts chapter 4, verse 31, passage we just looked at. The believers pray for boldness. They're already Christians. They've already got the Spirit. They pray for boldness and they are, boom, filled with the Spirit. And there's other examples. Chapter 13, verse 9, Paul, filled with the Spirit, turns and he addresses somebody. There's lots of moments in Acts where people are filled with the Spirit. Now, this requires some careful thinking. And the key is you've got to get on top of the language that Luke uses in the book of Acts. The way Luke uses them to be full of the Spirit and to be filled with the Spirit are actually different things. They're different things. So the full of language comes from the words he uses, plerez and plero'o, and this full of language seems to be about a settled or complete state of affairs. He uses it sometimes in non-spirit situations. For example, Acts 13 verse 10, you might jot some references down. Acts 13 10, Elymas is full of deceit and villainy. Tabitha, Acts 9.36, is full of good works and charity. What does that mean, full of good works and charity? I mean, it, it's talking about her life. It's characterising her life. It's not a momentary thing. And so here and there in, in Acts, we meet Christians who are full of the Holy Spirit. Stephen, Acts 6, verse 3, full of the Spirit and wisdom. Barnabas, 11.24, full of the Spirit and faith. The disciples, 1353, who were full of joy in the Holy Spirit. These are qualitative statements about the thoroughgoing work of the Spirit in their life, the extent of the Spirit's work. See, all Christians have the Spirit, but not all Christians are full of the Spirit. Not in the particular sense Luke means it here. Because to be full of the Spirit in Luke's sense is that the fruit of the Spirit is pervasively evident in maturity in your life. That is being full of the Spirit. Though hopefully that is something that you're praying for yourself. That you would be that person. Who, of whom it could be said they were full of the Holy Spirit. And hopefully you're praying that for your friends. If that's the full of language, which I say is about a settled or characteristic state of affairs, what's the filled language about? Well, the pletho or be filled language seems to be about a momentary experience. So again, some non-spirit examples. Acts 3.10, the crowd are filled with wonder and amazement. Now, the crowd don't remain full of wonder and amazement through the rest of Acts because they actually turn against the Christians. But momentarily, they were filled with wonder and amazement. The city of Ephesus in chapter 19, verse 29, is filled with confusion, not permanently, but it was filled with confusion in the midst of a riot. And so similarly, at, at various points, Christians are filled with the Spirit. And it seems to me to be, particularly when they're challenged with proclaiming Jesus in a scary situation... So the apostles at Pentecost, Acts 2 verse 4, Peter facing the Sanhedrin, the Jewish ruling council, Acts 4, 8, 
all the disciples when threatened by the Jewish authorities, Acts 4.31. And the result of being filled with the Spirit in this particular way is that they're empowered to proclaim Jesus despite the scary situation. So putting all this together, you get some interesting results. You can have the Spirit, since all Christians have the Spirit, but not be full of the Spirit. You can be full of the Spirit, but still be filled from time to time. That is, without leaking, right? Because that's just overplaying the metaphor, right? The Spirit doesn't leak out. We're dealing with... Talk to an English student, right? We have metaphors here, right? It means that you can have the Spirit, not yet in your growth in Christ be person who maybe we could say you're full of the Spirit in that sort of characteristic term. You can have the Spirit, not be full of the Spirit, but still be filled with the Spirit to proclaim Christ. What all this means is that the, and they were filled with the Spirit, those moments in Acts I don't think are indicating a unique second blessing that we ought to seek so that we can live the victorious Christian life. Uh, Don Carson puts it like this, Although I find no biblical support for a second blessing theology, I do find support for a second, third, fourth and fifth blessing theology. That is seeking the continual filling of the Spirit to live for Christ, particularly to proclaim Christ in a scary situation. Okay, well we can't stop, got to keep moving. The Spirit does more than this even in giving us life. The New Testament tells us that the Spirit is God's seal on believers that they are His. Not, of course, a seal like this. No. Though that would be weird. God's seal on His... I had this image of God's seal on His believers. (laughs) Which would be sort of odd. No, he He means seal as in this. A letter seal, a, a sort of a seal that marks who the owner is. In fact, better than this, it's probably more like this. This person has a tattoo of the word Hebrew scholars? Ruach. Tattooed on the person's arm. Which is sort of interesting, isn't it? Like you think, oh, that's a bit weird, full on. But have a look at what this verse says. I'm not encouraging you to do this, by the way. (laughs) Ephesians 1.13. In him that is in Christ, you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and had believed in him, were marked with the seal of the promised Holy Spirit. The seal is a sign. It's like a branding that you belong to God. It's a sign of his ownership. You are now his. He has rescued you out of the kingdom of darkness and brought you into the kingdom of his beloved son. Your name is written in the book of life. The spirit is the seal of God's ownership on you. And more. Oh, we better put the seal on our diagram, hadn't we? So that's where we got up to. So we had the seal. There we go. Even more. The Spirit now testifies that we are 
God's children. Okay, have a look at Romans 8, 15. Paul says here in Romans 8, For you did not receive a spirit of slavery to fall back into fear. You, Christian, have received a spirit, and I think it should be a capital S spirit there. You have received a spirit of adoption as sons. When we cry, Abba, Father, it is that very spirit bearing witness with our spirit that we are children of God. Let me try and explain it like this. Have you ever... If you're a Christian person, have you ever cried out to God as Father? What I mean is, you know, it might be the midst of a really hard time. Maybe it was in the middle of temptation. Maybe it was in a moment, even when of great thanksgiving welled up inside you and you just pray, Father, I mean, you might not have used the word Father. You might even just, Lord, but at that particular moment, you know, it just wells up inside you. Well, when you come to God, your Heavenly Father, like that, in dependent need, in heartfelt thanksgiving, or just in faithful, persevering prayer, that is evidence that the Holy Spirit is at work in you and that you are a child of God. Because according to Romans 8, in the very act of approaching God as Father, it is His indwelling Spirit that is testifying to your human spirit that you are God's child, that you've been adopted into his family with the full rights of sons, that is, of those who would rightly receive the inheritance. So what I mean is in the, in the beautiful way God has organised things, even in our darkest moments, when you're just desperately crying out to God your Father for help, for his comfort, for his reassurance, in that very approach to him, the very fact that you turn to him as your father, there is your reassurance that you went to him. Because it is his spirit testifying to your spirit that you are a child of God. And I can tell because you've gone to him in prayer. The reassurance comes in the very act of seeking after him. And finally, the Spirit doesn't just bring life. He's the means by which we relate to the Father and the Son on a continual basis. So I'll just add this bit in. Here we go. In the Spirit, we relate to our Heavenly Father through the Son. This is a, a really helpful little verse from Ephesians 2.18. For through Christ, both of us, that is Jew and Gentile, have access in one spirit to the Father. You might like to underline some of the things there. Through Christ, both of us have access in one spirit to the Father. This is a helpful verse because it shows the general highway of how we approach God. Right? The general highway of how we approach God is as this verse sort of sets it out. We approach God through Christ, in the Spirit, to the Father. And that sets the general pattern of our prayer, of our worship, of our praise, of our thanksgiving. It is to the Father, through the Son, in the Spirit. 
which helps you when you say, people say, well, can I pray to the Spirit? Well, the Spirit is God. Yes, you can pray to the Spirit. Can I pray to Jesus? Yes. There's one or two instances in the New Testament where maybe people are praying to Jesus. I don't know of any where they're actually praying to the Spirit. And that's because this verse here gives you the general highway of our approach to God. It is to the Father, through the Son, in the Spirit. And that's the pattern you'll find in most of the New Testament. But every now and then, yes, people go on little sidetracks. Yep, so you can, yeah, you can pray to Jesus. He's, he is God, he's God the Son. Yes, you can pray to the Spirit. As we saw in the Creed, the Spirit who is worshipped with the Father and the Son is worshipped and glorified. So yes, you can. But just note, this is not the main highway of how things are in the New Testament. So once you start trying to turn a sidetrack into your main sort of highway, you've got a problem, right? Because in our practice as Christians, we want to embody what we find in the New Testament and the pattern of worship and prayer and praise and thanksgiving that we find there. You might like to follow that up with me later. Uh, here's a, a quote here from James Torrance. He says, The New Testament understanding of worship is as the gift of participating through the Spirit in the incarnate Son's communion with the Father and his mission from the Father to the world in a life of wonderful communion. It's, it's glorious and it's tricky trying to read theology, right? Sometimes you get reading it, what? What's he saying? What's he saying? So you draw a picture. Well, that's what I do. Anyway, so I'm imposing that on you. What he's saying there is, see, the great gift is that through the Spirit, you participate in Jesus' relationship with his heavenly Father. You've been adopted as a child of God, but actually it's the spirit of sonship that has been shared with you. So you've been drawn up into the very relationship that God has within himself as father and son. You've been drawn up into that. And so the love that the father has for the son, he has for you. Because through the spirit, you've been united to his son. You've been drawn up into this most wonderful of loving relationships. By grace, through faith, on the basis of the death and resurrection of Jesus but now available to you through the ministry of the Spirit in your life. So, there's our picture of what the Spirit is doing, of the mission of the Spirit. And you must say, when you look at it, wow, there's a lot of yellow arrows. The Spirit is doing an awful lot. His work is thoroughly pervasive. See, without the Spirit, what would the picture look like? That's all you get. A person with a mouth open saying nothing and another person who doesn't know what's going on. It's true. Isn't that just what I've, we've seen? This is the reality without the work of the God. But once the Spirit is at work, His work is thoroughly pervasive in every aspect of you coming to faith in Christ that you might have life. So, the question is, who needs the Spirit? We do. We do. We need the Spirit. The Spirit's work is fundamental. It's instrumental in every aspect of receiving life from God in Christ. You cannot live 
and you would not live as a Christian without the Spirit. Or to put, put it another way, the Spirit is irreplaceable. You can't drop the Spirit out of the picture. You can't replace him with someone or something else. Let me show you what I mean. First, you can't have just the Father and the Son. Let's try some options on for size. Um, Pinnock famously said, modern Christians are largely content to be Trinitarian in belief, but Binitarian in practice. Can we effectively drop out the Spirit? No. Well, let's push a bit harder. You sure? Yeah, let's try. You can't replace the Spirit with Jesus. Many years ago, I remember being at Ancon and we sang a song about Jesus and it had this line in it. I believe that he's here now, standing in our midst. Is that true? That Jesus is here now, standing in our midst? Invisibly? Maybe over there? Maybe he's hovering. Like, it's just not true. Were we listening this morning as Steve opened up God's word for us? Jesus departed. He left his comforting presence of the Spirit. You can't replace the Spirit with Jesus. I will ask the Father, he will give you another comforter, another advocate to be with you forever. So you can't go and replace the Spirit with Jesus, but neither can, neither can you replace Jesus with the Spirit, actually. If you lose sight of Jesus and just focus on the Spirit, you lose the objective nature of what God has done for us in securing life, and you only end up with the subjective work of God in you. You can see it there on the table. I've tried to lay it out for you. The Lord Jesus Christ does his work for us, in his death and resurrection, it's external to us, but the Holy Spirit does his work in us, individually, granting us faith, repentance, uniting us to Christ, sealing us as belonging to the Father. It's an internal, individual work. The Lord Jesus Christ did his work once for all time in his death and resurrection. The Holy Spirit is working continually, not just bringing people to faith, but sustaining them in that faith. The Lord Jesus' work is complete. There's nothing more to add to it. Whereas the Holy Spirit's work is progressive, the Spirit is conforming us gradually to the image of Jesus. The Spirit doesn't just sustain us, but keeps doing his work in us so that there's growth, progress in our Christian life. So just the Father and the Son's no good. But nor can you have just the Father, Son and Holy Scripture. This is the danger of an unevangelical evangelical Christianity. A Christianity that is so focused on the Bible as God's inspired word that it loses the very truths that the Bible contains including the truth about the place of the Spirit in our life. So you can't replace the Spirit with the Bible. Why? Well, because the view of the Bible itself is that it is the Spirit who speaks through the Scriptures. So Hebrews chapter 3, verse 7, the writer quotes Psalm 95. He says, Therefore, as the Holy Spirit says, and then quotes Psalm 95, He's saying not just that the Holy Spirit spoke in the past through the psalmist, he's saying the Holy Spirit speaks now through that written word. The Holy Spirit speaks today through the words of Scripture. The Bible is the Spirit's speech. 
So to try to replace the Spirit with the Bible actually misunderstands whose book the Bible is. It's the book the Spirit speaks through. But nor can you replace the Bible with the Spirit. Because just to chuck out the Bible, which actually can happen at a remarkably, e- remarkably easily, even if at a, at a functional level, maybe if not a theological, formal sort of level, it's easy just to go with the Spirit and leave the Word, the revealed Word, aside. And, and that's dangerous. I mean dangerous. The reason is because the Bible is clear, not everything that happens in the name of Jesus is actually of Jesus. And not everything that happens in the power of the Spirit is actually of the Spirit. The Bible talks about false prophecy and it talks about false prophets and false signs, false wonders. So according to 2 Thessalonians 2 verse 9, the devil uses all power, signs and lying wonders. So just because, wow, that was amazing. Did you see how the Spirit did? Are you sure it was the Spirit? How are you going to know? That's why John says in 1 John 4, verse 1, Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see if they're from God. For many false prophets have gone out into the world. We're to test the spirits, weigh up prophecy, see if it's really from the Holy Spirit. We're to measure it against the certain and sure revelation of God, preserved for us in the Scriptures. That's our God-given litmus test, to test the spirits for their authenticity. So to try to replace the Bible or chuck out the Bible and just have the Spirit is, is, is dangerous. It's a sure recipe for all sorts of heresy, deception, manipulation and ultimately destruction. It's like, I was trying to remember, it's like sitting on a branch connected to a tree and soaring between you and the tree. Once you've got through that troublesome branch, woo, I'm free, I'm flying. But it's going to end badly when you hit the ground. You lose your moorings in the word. Danger. Really serious danger. But third, you can't just have the Father, Son and me. You can't even replace the Spirit with yourself. This is where we ignore the fact that we need the Spirit of God to bring us faith. We ignore the fact that we need the Spirit to grow in faith. Instead, we think it's all up to me. It's all up to me just to generate the faith and sustain the faith and to persevere. And Well, that's just not how God says it works. You've fallen into it's all me-ism. It's all up to me. Faith is a human decision, a mere human work in my own strength. But nor can you replace yourself with the Spirit. Sometimes people flip out and instead of falling into all me-ism, they flip out and fall off the opposite cliff into it's all God-ism. That's where everything is so much God that there's actually no room left for genuine human responsibility, for genuine human agency, for genuine human decisions. See, to stay true to what God's revealed in Scripture, you you have to maintain both the irreplaceable work of God in us by his spirit, but also our genuine human response and responsibility and activity. You have to hold both together. You can't preference or prioritise one over the other. So Tom Smale captures it really nicely here when he says, 
We must indeed answer for ourselves, but we do not and cannot answer by ourselves. You have to hold both. Well, summary, the mission of God. I don't know what you think God's doing in the world. Is he just sitting around waiting, you know, watching what you might decide to do next, sort of like you might watch an ant's nest, you know, we're all just busy running around, just sitting there watching. Is he like some supernatural foosball player, you know, spinning the rods, making people go hither and thither? (laughs) Is he watching semi-helplessly as his world that he's made careers off the rails in self-destruction? What's God doing? Well, over the last three talks, you've seen what God is doing. You've seen the great mission of God. That God, the Father, Son and Spirit, is working to give life to us death-bound creatures. That is what he's doing. And when I say life, I mean what the Bible means by life, which in one place it describes it as the life that really is life. I mean, I know we have life now, but there's a life that really is life. What the Bible also calls eternal life. Life in never-ending relationship with the Father, through the Son, in the Spirit. Life that starts now and continues beyond the grave. Life that does not and will not and cannot end in the second death. That life is the gift of God, the Father. It's established in the death and resurrection of God, the Son. And it's shared with you through God, the Holy Spirit. That is what God is doing in the world. It's his mission to bring life to his creatures. And you know what? Every single semester at Sydney Uni, we see the miracle whereby people receive life in his name. Every semester. It's fantastic. We see one, two, three, four people come to faith in Christ. It's fantastic. Because, you know, they are receiving life from God, which is what God wants to give them. I mean, it'd be great to see hundreds. It'd be great to see thousands. But that's not going to happen. Is it? Well, we'll have a break and come back and think about that. I have some things to share with you that some of you who some of you may know I have some things that I want to share with you in the next, just this last little bit, that have been on my heart and mind for a while now, Uh, at least all of this year, been thinking about bits of this, and it fits fits well, exactly, precisely into where we're at in terms of this talk on the spirit who brings us life. Let's talk about what Jonathan Edwards called the surprising work of God. Spirit-empowered revival. There's Jonathan Edwards. That's what he looked like. Don't judge a guy by his looks. (laughs) Or his wig. I want to say this. There have been times and places over the years where people in large numbers have come to faith in Jesus. The opening chapters of Acts springs to mind. On the day of Pentecost... 
3,000 came to faith in Jesus. That's like, you know, five to six times the number of people who are here. One, two, three, four, five. One day, boom, that many people. And there have been many other occasions where great numbers of people have come to faith. The most famous of which is probably the first great awakening from 1730 through to about 1755, what Jonathan Edwards called, uh, as a guy who was involved with it and who wrote about it and how we know about it from a lot of what he wrote, he called it a wonderful effusion of God's spirit. If you've never read Jonathan Edwards' account of the revival in America, uh, one that's called A Faithful Narrative of the Surprising Work of God, um, find it online. You find it online, read it. You really ought to. It's tremendously encouraging. Edwards was the minister of Northampton, Massachusetts in the US in the 1730s. It was a town of about 200 families. I'm just going to, this is story time, right? I'm just going to tell you, i read you a bit of his account of what happened. He says this, And then it was, in the latter part of December 1734, that the Spirit of God began extraordinarily to set in and wonderfully to work amongst us. And there were very suddenly, one after another, five or six persons who were all appearances savingly converted and some of them wrought upon in a most remarkable manner. Presently upon this, a great and earnest concern about the great things of religion and the eternal world became universal in all parts of the town and among persons of all degrees and all ages. The noise amongst the dry bones, that Ezekiel 37, right? The noise amongst the dry bones waxed louder and louder. All other talk, but about spiritual and eternal things, was soon thrown by. All the conversation in all companies and upon all occasions was upon these things only, unless so much as was necessary for people carrying on their ordinary secular business. He's very precise, his efforts. He goes on, there was scarcely a single person in the town, old or young, left unconcerned about the great things of the eternal world. Those who were wont to be the vainest and loosest, and those who had been disposed to think and speak lightly of vital and experimental religion, were now generally subject to great awakenings. And the work of conversion was carried on in a most astonishing manner and increased more and more. Souls did, as it were, come by flocks to Jesus Christ. From day to day, for many months together, might be seen evident instances of sinners brought out of darkness into marvellous light and delivered out of a horrible pit and from the miry clay and set upon a rock with a new song of praise to God in their mouth. I am far from pretending to be able to determine how many have lately been the subjects of such mercy. But if I may be allowed to declare anything that appears to me probable in a thing of thin nature, this nature, I hope that more than 300 souls were savingly brought home to Christ in this town in the space of half a year. That's 300 people out of a town of just 200 families in six months. That's more people than have been converted through all the Christian groups at Sydney Uni. Well, maybe ever. Combined. 
and then it wasn't just limited to Northampton. Edward records. There were many instances of persons who came from abroad on visits or on business who had not been long here before to all appearances they were savingly wrought upon and partook of that shower of divine blessing which God rained down here and went home rejoicing till at length the same work began evidently to appear and prevail in several other towns in the country. So what happened in Northampton wasn't isolated. Almost simultaneously, actually, there were revivals breaking out in England, Scotland and Wales as well. And it wasn't really just at that time. There have been revivals in many different places. As at different moments, God has done this extraordinary, surprising work. I was reading about the revival in East Africa, which lasted 30 years and saw many thousands of people saved. And the historian who was writing about it said, Revival is the normal work of God, but happening with unusual intensity. The, unus the, the normal work of God, but happening with unusual intensity. But my question is, would we ever see it at Sydney Uni? Will we ever see such an outpouring of God's Spirit to bring hundreds and thousands to faith in Jesus? Now, in other parts of the world, particularly in what's called the 1040 window, spirit-empowered revival seems to be happening now in many places. Could it happen at Sydney Uni? Could it genuinely happen in our city, in our churches, in our suburbs? The answer has to be yes. Of course it could happen. We know God's declared intent is to bring life to his death-bound creatures. And we see times where God does bring large numbers of people to genuine faith in Jesus, both in the Bible and subsequently in history. So of course God could bring revival to Sydney Uni and to our city. But will he do it? Will God bring revival? Well, we don't know. He has not promised it. But we do know. He does not desire the death of a single sinner. Not a single one. So we know the heart of God. And we know the power of God to bring life to his people. So what can we do? Three concrete steps. First of all, pray. Please, will you pray for revival? Pray to God for a wonderful effusion of God's Spirit into the hearts of hundreds and thousands because we've seen tonight that we need the Spirit of God so that people can understand this weak message of Christ crucified so that it might be, they might be transformed together. That is the wisdom of God for their salvation that they might come to faith and have life. There was a remarkable revival in Melbourne go figure, but in Melbourne <laughs> in 1902. I didn't even know about this till a couple of weeks ago. In a four-week period in Melbourne in 1902, 8,642 people made a, quote, definite profession of having accepted the Lord Jesus Christ as their saviour. 8,642 people in four weeks. But this is what I found staggering. The origins, as far as one can tell, 
the origins of that revival go back to a group of four people who 13 years previously, in 1889, had formed what they called the Band of Prayer, which met every Saturday afternoon for two hours or more to beg, for God, beg to God for revival to the city. And they said they were going to meet until it came. 13 years. One man who led the group, or the man who led the group, died before revival came. Another man died in the first week of the meetings in 1902, literally on his knees. Another woman, convicted of the need to pray, in preparation for the 1902 meetings, organised 1,700 neighbourhood prayer meetings that were held every week throughout Melbourne. Now, I don't know how big Melbourne was in 1902, but it must have been, you know, I don't know, tiny. Um, <laughs> no, I don't know, but... 1,700 weekly prayer meetings this woman organised. Now, prayer is not magical. God isn't impressed or manipulated by our prayers. Right? But, but might it be, just might it be, that as James says in James 4.2, you do not have because you do not ask. Just might it be. Might that be the reason we haven't seen revival is because actually we haven't asked for it. I mean, I do pray every now and then for God to have mercy and to bring people to faith. And graciously, God has done it amongst us. But have I persevered in prayer for revival? And again, it's not that perseverance makes the prayer effective. No, but see, persevering in prayer for something actually reflects something of my heart, doesn't it? If I'm persevering in prayer, it's because I actually really want to see this happen. So maybe God hasn't brought revival to Sydney Uni and to our churches and to our city because we actually still have a way to go in terms of getting just how much our uni and our city need saving. See, when we get the reality of the second death, of the coming just, righteous and fair judgment of God, when we have the astounding love of God in his mission to bring life to his creatures, when those things are deep in our hearts, doesn't that have to drive us to our knees? Isn't that the direction it should take me? Again, it's not the extent, it's not the intensity, it's not how long our prayer meetings are. That's not what it's about, friends. It's about our heart. It's whether our passions and, and longings are those of God. To see those he loves, who he's made, to receive life in all its fullness. And just knowing the essential work of the Spirit to bring that life, surely our heart should lead us to persevering prayer. And whether God does that surprising work of revival, well, that is up to him. So let me ask you, will you pray? Will you long for the lost like God does? Will you pray for them? Will you pray for revival in our city, 
for a wonderful effusion of his spirit at Sydney Uni? Will you pray for it this semester? Will you pray for it next year or the year after? Will you keep on praying it? Will you commit to it? Will you persevere in it? And of course, actually, whenever you point, <laughs> there's three fingers pointing back at you. So I'm really asking, will I do it? I've been reflecting on this and, and I want to say to you this. I will. I am willing. I'm committing myself to pray persistently for revival at Sydney Uni. And I don't just mean this week. Whether God answers our prayers this year, next year, or in 50 years, when we're doing it in the nursing home together. <laughs> but I'm talking about, do you want to see God bring life? Yes! Then will you join me in committing to pray for it? that God might have mercy. Well, the second thing we can do is, second dot point, we can pray. Uh, yes, that's the second dot point, pray, but this time for boldness. Pray for boldness. Right back at the beginning of tonight's talk, we looked at Acts 4, saw how those who were the first followers of Jesus, when they were threatened by the authorities, commanded not to speak about Jesus, their response was to pray for boldness. So if we're really gripped by the love of God in Christ for us, then our friends need to know not just that we're praying for them, they need to know the message of God's grace in Christ. Jesus said, my words are spirit and life. They need to hear them. So you've got to pray for boldness. Because I know it's scary to proclaim Christ. Then pray for, the, pray for boldness from God's spirit. Third thing to do, towards revival, don't be passive. Don't just sit on your backside and pray for revival and pray for boldness and then sit back and wait for God to zap you and turn you into preacher person, right? It just doesn't work that way. That's not how God works in us by his spirit. That's falling into it's all Godism, actually. No, you work and God is the one working in and through you. So take every opportunity to share Jesus. Don't be passive. Pray for boldness. Pray for God to bring the blessing of life to those to whom you have the opportunity to share. But don't be passive. Conclusion. The spiritual invitation come. Look, friends, you've done well. I'm halfway through all my six talks, so you've, you're at the halfway point. So congratulations, you've done a fantastic job. What we've looked at is the mission of God to bring life. I just want to say, and this is sort of like a code at the end, there are people here I know who haven't yet made a decision to entrust themselves to Jesus. You haven't yet received this life in capital letters that God really wants to give you. Maybe these last two days have been really, really full on for you. Maybe this has just been, this is just all, so much. I want to say, it's okay. Don't freak out. We are just so, so glad you're here. There is no better place, I believe, for you to be this week than amongst God's people, listening and, and, and trying to engage with what God has to say. So it's okay. 
Take your time. Ask lots of questions. Give a really hard time to your review group. You know, ask the hard questions of them. But I also know that there's a number of people here who maybe have been around for a while, and this is not the first time you've heard this stuff, but you know that you haven't yet actually made a decision for Jesus. But maybe just even given the stuff we've talked about tonight, you can actually, you hear the call of God on your life through the words of Jesus and the power of the Spirit working in you. May I just say, if that's you, don't just let God's gift of life pass you by. Why don't you do something about it tonight? Uh, often at the end of our sessions, there's lots of people who God's been saying you know, lots of things through the talk to them and they're sort of a, they're, there's stuff they want to deal with. And we've realised that you know, people really can benefit from prayer at the end of our sessions. So we thought today that what we might do from now on, actually, in every session is if you'd like prayer for anything, it doesn't have to even be related to what's going on uh, in the talk, but if you'd like prayer for anything, there'll be a bunch of EU staff workers just over there, sort of in that corner over there, spread out. Just, they're there purely just to listen and to pray with you. This is not about, you know, counselling. We're not going to try to be giving advice. It's not doing any of that. It's really just, we just want to bring this to, to our Father, our Heavenly Father in prayer. So I encourage you to make use of that if any time this week you'd like to do that. And I may say, if you want to actually commit yourself to Jesus tonight, then why don't you make use of that? Why don't you just go over, share with the person, and we'd love to pray with you that you might accept God's gift of life in Jesus through the Spirit. Okay, let me lead us in a prayer. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we want to thank you so much for your great grace to us in the Lord Jesus Christ in his death and resurrection and for the astounding way that you work by your spirit to bring life to us death-bound creatures. Thank you, Father, for your great mercy to us. We pray, Father, for those of our friends here who are still trying to sort out what they think about you. We just pray that you would give them spirit-inspired clarity. We pray, Father, for those who feel your call on them. We pray, Father, you would give them courage to entrust themselves to Jesus in the power of your Spirit. And we pray for ourselves, Father, that you might grant us boldness to proclaim the life-giving words of Jesus to a world that we know needs it so desperately. We pray that you would provoke us by your Spirit not to be passive, and we earnestly ask, Lord, that you might pour out your spirit in such power that we might see hundreds and thousands come to faith at Sydney Uni and in this city. Lord, we know that only you can do that. But we know that our uni desperately needs it. Father, in your great love, Bring glory to Jesus and to your own name by working powerfully by your spirit to bring life to the people who need it. We ask it for your glory, Lord, not for ourselves. Amen.